Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin on this Labor Day with the good news for organized labor from a recent poll that finds 71% of Americans approved of unions since the low unemployment rate that developed during the pandemic has altered the balance of power between employers and employees, creating an environment conducive to union membership that has resulted in the formation of unions at several major companies. Joining us is Lane Wyndham, Associate Director of Georgetown University's Kalmanovitz Institute for Labor and the Working Poor, and the co-director of Will Empower, that's Women Innovating Labor Leadership. She's the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s, and the Roots of a New Economic Divide. Then we'll speak with Tom Hartman, the host of the nationally and internationally syndicated talk show, The Tom Hartman Program, carried on Sirius XM and radio stations nationwide, and broadcast in video on Free Speech TV. Talkers Magazine named him America's number one most important progressive host and the host of one of the top ten radio shows in the country every year for over a decade. A full-time recipient of the Project Censored Award, Hartman is also a New York Times bestselling author of 32 books translated into multiple languages, including The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. And we will discuss his latest book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, how Reaganism gutted America and how to restore its greatness. Then finally, we will speak with Stephen Greenhouse, who was a reporter for the New York Times from 1983 to 2014, where he covered labor and the workplace for 19 years. He also served as a business and economics reporter and as a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. He's the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present and Future of American Labor, and we will discuss his article at The Guardian, Starbucks and Amazon Accused of Dragging Their Feet on Union Contracts. We will examine the need to pass the PRO Act because even when unions win contracts, corporations, using their legions of lawyers, drag out the implementation of unionization for years. And before we begin today's special Labor Day program, I'd like to apologize to our listeners who tried to get the Sunday program on Apple Podcasts. The technical issues have been resolved, and all of the archives going back for the last few months have been restored. So we're back in business, and I thank you for this temporary inconvenience, and I hope you enjoy today's program. And joining us now on this Labor Day weekend is Lane Wyndham, Associate Director of Georgetown University's Kalamovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor, and the co-director of WILL, W-I-L-L, WILL Empower. That's Women Innovating Labor Leadership. She is the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s and the Roots of a New Economic Divide. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lane Wyndham. Happy to be here with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's good news on this Labor Day, particularly in terms of the uptick, surprisingly, and considerable uptick in support amongst Americans for labor unions. A new Gallup uh, annual work and education survey found that American approval of labor unions is as highest it's been in nearly 60 years. 71% of U.S. residents approve of unions, which was about as high as it was back in 1965. And of course, the 1950s, there was even more support for unions. Three in four Americans apparently 
back then that supported the unions. But still, you know, labor unions' approval rates, they've been climbing steadily in recent years from 64% before the pandemic to uh, last year when it's at 68%. So something is stirring out there, wouldn't you say, Lane? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, uh, if you dig into those numbers a little bit, you see that the support among young workers, those 35 and under, is particularly strong. Uh, a, a huge number of young people are particularly uh, supportive of unions. You know, I really think that uh, historians are going to look back on this moment and are going to remember it for a high level of worker activity and unrest, we are living through a kind of worker rights revival. We've seen workers organizing in high-profile places like, of course, Starbucks. We've all been watching that, or Amazon, or even REI and Trader Joe's. But there's lots of organizing uh, among workers happening behind the scenes on college campuses. There's a big election at MIT, for instance, at hospitals. Um, And so I think, you know, that we may be at the start of a new era. I think, however, it's, it's a little impossible to say. It depends in part on those young people, I think, who have been leading a lot of this worker action and uh, whether they continue to show the level of interest that they've been showing in recent months, really. So the other uh, good news is that uh, unemployment rate is at an historic low of 3.6%, and clearly American workers are enjoying a rare and hopefully not a fleeting moment of increased bargaining power, but at the risk of... (laughs) of being less than optimistic, Lane, it seems that the Federal Reserve is in the business of in fighting inflation. It looks as if they're really going to hurt this power that workers have. It seems that the Fed is, its solution to rein in inflation is to go after workers as opposed to corporations that are taking advantage of inflation by jacking up prices. Well, Ian, that's exactly right. I mean, let's think back over the last couple of years and what we've lived through, right? With this pandemic, uh, you know, lots of people um, began to uh, say, hey, I'm not going to work for these low wages. I'm not going to work these bad jobs anymore. You know, we banged pots and pans for essential workers and we all watched as they went back to many of the, the same uh, poor jobs with low pay and low benefits. And people just said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do this. And so um, the economists for a long time called it a labor shortage. It wasn't a labor shortage. It was a wage and worker rights shortage. Uh, and people pushed back. They voted with their feet. Millions just sort of stayed home. Um, they looked at their options. And wages did eventually start to rise. That's right. And then workers were, of course, also organizing and pushing for higher wages in that way. They, uh, many workers sort of waited employers out. But you're exactly right. Federal policy, uh, the Federal Reserve has a choice. It can support working families and their communities 
uh, and let workers uh, use the tools that they have available to uh, push wages up, or they can weigh in more heavily on the side of the corporations. And that's what we're watching the Federal Reserve do, is make that decision um, in, in terms of how they're going to handle handle inflation and handle the interest rates. But what can we do about it? What can our listeners do on this Labor Day? That's an excellent question. So, you know, I think that people who are supporting Supportive of workers uh, can find out what's happening among workers in your community. Uh, you know, for example, in my community, the Star Work, Starbucks workers are holding SIP ins this uh, Labor Day weekend, where people are signing up to go support the Starbucks workers and be part of an action there. But people can also weigh in on behalf of the working people who are standing up, who are taking action, whether that's on the picket line or organizing or uh, in multiple other ways, um, because that kind of collective action is what ultimately is going to build a better future for working people. And again, I'm speaking with Lane Windham, who's Associate Director of Georgetown University's Kalamovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor, and the co-director of Will Empower, that's W-I-L-L, Women Innovating Labor Leadership. She is the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s and the Roots of a New Economic Divide. So we are definitely living through an era. I mean, we've just been discussing how this new support for labor, 71% of Americans approve of labor unions. So that's the good news. But at the same time, the plutocracy has gotten more powerful and more richer, and there's been more and more wealth in the hands of people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and the Walton family, etc. We don't know whether they're the richest people in the world because of Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia and Vladimir Putin in Russia. But uh, it's still extraordinary how the income gap has continued to rise, even in this new economy that's favorable to labor in terms of the low unemployment rate and the fact that the low unemployment rate that's developed during this pandemic has altered the balance of power between employers and employees, and it's created an environment that clearly has been helpful to union membership and has resulted in the formation of unions, in, as you mentioned earlier, in many high-profile companies, not just uh, the Starbucks and Amazons, but in major hospitals and universities, etc. So let's talk a little bit about inequality and the march of the plutocracy. What's going to rein that in? Can public opinion and pressure, I mean, I guess there's a certain element in our society which may explain why people voted for Donald Trump. You know, they're kind of almost like winning the lottery. They support or are in the thrall of billionaires. But I'm not sure that that's too pervasive in this country. I think there's a tradition in this country of fairness, isn't there? At least I hope there is. Right, right, right. These are all excellent questions. Um, so... First, I'm going to let's talk about the your, the last question in terms of uh, the the support for Trump and what we saw. Um, you know, when we talk about the working class in this country, a lot of times the media uh, 
features, you know, a white guy in a hard hat, the kind of uh, many of the uh, Donald Trump supporters maybe fit that mold. But I just want to be clear that the working class in this country is diverse. It's women. It's people of color. Um, and so we have a very diverse group of people who are organizing on multiple platforms within traditional unions and within a range of groups that build power in many ways, even outside of the realm of collective bargaining. So so I just wanted to point out that um, though there has been support among working class people for Trump, there are many working class people. In fact, most working class people have not shown that support. And then you ask this question on, you know, inequality in the United States, uh, which of course is, uh, it's enormous. And as you, as you know, the, the uh, wealthiest have only gotten wealthier <laughs> during, during this crisis that we have, this global crisis that we have all lived through. Um, and I think that Ultimately, what is going to have to happen in the United States is we're going to have to revisit uh, elements of our entire social welfare structure. Uh, by that, I mean both the employer-provided social welfare, like the health care and pensions, but also our taxation system. Uh, we are going to have to fundamentally revisit uh, how working people's uh, basic needs uh, are, are taken care of, then we're going to have to look at, at uh, have a whole discussion about uh, taxation. And that, of course, is going to take political power uh, and political at the ballot box, but also political power and, uh, you know, what John Lewis would have called good trouble uh, in terms of uh, pickets in terms of rallies, in terms of collective action. Um, and what I'm describing is a long-term change, uh, but I believe that in ultimately in order to bend that arc of inequality that we has been so strong, uh, we are going to have to revisit um, some of the fundamental ways that we allocate resources, where we allocate social welfare in this country. Well, of course, the Supreme Court Citizens United decision has been a gift to the plutocrats and particularly the dark money vehicles um, where they don't have to disclose uh, where the money's coming from. And that's how one person, Leonard Leo, was able to take over the Supreme Court with its uh, supermajority of arch conservatives, all of whom were handpicked by him. So that is a, a reality. And the Supreme Court, of course, is a mechanism through which the plutocrats can turn back the clock. And they're already attacking uh, labor rights and the ability to, of the government itself to regulate the air through the and water through the EPA, and health and safety through OSHA, and even uh, even the ability of the government to protect public health. They've gone after that, so that's a battlefront. But in terms of the election landscape, is there do you think a possibility that small donations can be met you know you've got people like a billionaire peter Thiel, who's literally buying two senate seats one in arizona and one in ohio right right so first on the supreme court 
we our court right now is the most corporate that we have seen in our lifetime and beyond. Uh, you know, there's a recent study which actually looked at the decisions from the Supreme Court uh, and, and the Roberts Court, and it is, you know, there have been more decisions for corporations than in any time in recent memory. So you're absolutely right that uh, our democracy is going to have to uh, hold this Supreme Court accountable. Um, and that, that that is a very, very, very difficult um, element to progressive change in this country. Um, in terms of electoral politics, you know, I think that while it is absolutely true that the uh, wealthy uh, have undue influence on elections, people can have power, uh, both through small donations, but also through uh, shoe leather and door knocking and reaching out in their workplaces and communities. You know, we I think that we have all seen in the last year the extent to which our democracy is under attack. Um, and my hope is that in this election and beyond that people will begin to really reclaim uh, our democracy and be active. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, back to what we started with, I think that young people's activity in unions and labor is particularly um, hopeful on that end because young people need to be also active in electoral politics and Studies have routinely shown that labor union members, people who are engaged in their union, tend to be more active in electoral politics. So that could be a pathway in for young people. So just in closing then, Lane Wyndham, the same poll, that um, the Gallup poll, that finds that 71% of U.S. residents approve of unions. Also, among non-union members interviewed by Gallup, 58% said that they had no interest in joining a union at all, while 11% said they were extremely interested. So there is some room for more union organizing with that 11%, right? Oh, absolutely. I think there's plenty of room for uh, union organizing, for union action, for collective action in many ways at the work site and in the community. You know, people, people want a better life. They they want uh, not only a better paycheck, but they want to have a have a better place to live in in their community. And so I think that um, you know when you get down to the reality of people's lives, there's lots of room to talk with people about joining together to make those kinds of improvements. Well, Lane Wyndham, thank you so much for joining us on this Labor Day weekend. Thank you. It's been an honor to chat with you today. Well, thank you, Lane. And again, I've been speaking with Lane Wyndham, who's the Associate Director of Georgetown University Kalmanovich Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor and the Co-Director of Will Empower. That's Women Innovating Labor Leadership. And she's the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s and the Roots of a New Economic Divide. We're going to take a brief station break and back speaking with Tom Hartman about his latest book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America, and How to Restore Its Greatness. 
Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us on this Labor Day weekend is Tom Hartman, the host of the nationally and internationally syndicated talk show, The Tom Hartman Program, carried on Sirius XM and radio stations nationwide and broadcast in video on Free Speech TV. Talkus magazine named him America's number one most important progressive host and the host of one of the top 10 talk radio shows in the country every year for over a decade. A four-time recipient of the Project Censored Award, Hartman is also a New York Times best-selling author of 32 books translated into multiple languages, including The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, and his latest book is The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tom Hartman. Hey, hey, Ian. It's always great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for joining us, Tom. And I'm astounded that anybody could have bought this bill of goods, the idea that you basically destroy the American industrial heartland. You've closed 60,000 American factories and ship, in effect, America's industrial base to China. And in exchange, we get Chinese manufactured cheap stuff, which is sold at Walmart. You know, the, the beneficiaries of this neoliberalism seems to have been the Chinese Communist Party and the Walton family uh, down there in Arkansas, who I think are the richest family in the world, are they not? Or at least if they're not, they're the second richest. Yeah, they're the richest family in America. I doubt they could compete with some of your, your Middle Eastern sheikhs, but yeah. It's been an interesting story, an interesting arc. In 1981, when Ronald Reagan was sworn into office, Walmart, there was a, we had just moved to Georgia at that time, and there was a brand new Walmart just up the road from us in Alpharetta. And they had a big banner out in front that said, 100% made in the USA. That was their slogan for Walmart. You know, Sam, Sam Walton was quite proud of that. Um, you know, within a decade, it was completely reversed. But, you know, or maybe, maybe a decade and a half. And, you know, Reagan's embrace of neoliberalism in 1981 uh, redirected America away from basically Keynesian or New Deal economics or classic economics. You could even argue Adam Smith economics, regulated capitalism and toward this laissez faire, unregulated capitalism that, that you know, Milton Friedman was pitching. 20 um, percent of America uh, agreed in 1992 uh, this was, you know, 12 years later after Reagan had had negotiated the GATT and, and, the, and helped create the World Trade Organization or what would become the World Trade Organization, um, had uh, the Bush, the subsequent, his vice president, George H.W. Bush, his administration uh, negotiated the NAFTA agreement. Um, and, you know, and that and that was, uh, you know, Americans at that point were going, really, you want to just be able to, you know, have American manufacturing companies go anywhere in the world and get cheap labor to compete with us? We're not real happy about that. But it was sold to us, you know, on the Republican side, it was basically this is going to increase corporate profits and that's going to trickle down to everybody. It's going to increase the prosperity of the nation. And on the Democratic side, 
uh, the sales pitch from from the Clinton administration, who also embraced neoliberalism, was, uh, you know, the industrial age is over. It's it's fading into the background. Those are dirty industries. And we should let those dirty industries go to third world countries where basically people of color can do those dirty jobs and be exposed to those dirty chemicals and toxins. And here in the United States, we're going to prepare for a brand new white collar economy based on the Internet and computers and technology. And it's going to be a wonderful, brave new world. You know, it was all BS on both their parts, but the, that was basically the sales pitch. And, and here we are, you know, we, we, uh, we've spent 40 years embracing a neoliberal uh, agenda and all we got is a T-shirt made in China. And I think there was also a kind of utopian notion about that once you got engaged, say, China economically, it would liberalize. And boy, is that proven to be false. It's the most ubiquitous control of human beings on the planet with absolutely pervasive high-tech surveillance in China. They operate on the 996 principle vis-a-vis work and labor, work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week, and they do it all in the name of of nationalism and making the country great. Did you you ever see, Tom, that documentary that the Obamas produced about the Chinese factory that moved to Ohio. It no. was ab- absolutely telling. Uh, <laughs> when they did the groundbreaking, the senator from uh, Ohio, Sherrod Brown, made a speech calling for it to, the place to be unionized, and the Chinese CEO, CEO has a fit. Like, what is this <laughs> this guy talking about? I mean, they don't even have unions in China. I mean. Yeah. It's amazing. So was that was that a part of it too? The idea that somehow this would bring uh, the world closer together and less divided. Oh, that was very much uh, you know the sales pitch that both Clinton administration and the subsequent George W. Bush administration um, pushed uh, aggressively and and was all over the media. I mean, probably the number one salesman for this was Thomas Friedman, the the the, the billionaire New York Times writer. Uh, well, I guess he, he married a billionaire, but in, in any case, the wealthy New York Times uh, 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 op-ed writer who wrote a book uh, pitching this back in the maybe the late 80s, maybe the early 90s. It was called The Olive Tree and the Lexus or The Lexus and the Olive Tree. And, uh, you know, which was particularly ironic, uh, you know, what he was pointing out in his book was that the Middle East was very poor. And um, South Korea had once been very poor. Uh, Japan had been relatively poor um, at one point, and but uh, South Korea in particular. And uh, but South Korea and you know uh, somehow magically started trading with the United States and the world, and and therefore uh, the Middle East should do the same thing, and this would stop the wars in the Middle East. Well, the fact of the matter is that South Korea embraced in 1956 when when uh, uh, park general park uh, did his military coup embraced alexander hamilton's american plan they put into place very very high import tariffs on foreign goods uh, it was uh, a shameable publicly shameable offense to to buy or use foreign products including uh, american cigarettes um, they subsidized their exports samsung was uh, in the business of selling fish one of the other big combines, I'm forgetting which one it is, um, was in the business of selling human hair. I mean, these those were the major exports from uh, South Korea at the time in the 1950s. And through this very protectionist policy, 
um, you know, they built this extraordinary empire and, and, and Friedman just like completely ignored that and, and kind of pretended that it was all free trade because they sold so much of their products, you know, in the United States and overseas. And, uh, you know, it's taken 40 years for Americans to figure out that it was crazy. I mean, you know, 20% of us did in 92, but, um, but it's taken a while. And again, I'm speaking with Tom Hartman, a four-time winner of the Project Censored Award and a New York Times bestselling author of over 30 books. He is he has been America's number one progressive talk radio ho- show. He has been America's number one progressive talk radio show host for more than a decade. And his latest book is The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. Yeah, now we're waking up with supply chain problems. And as I mentioned earlier, the, China has hardly become a liberal democracy. In fact, both Xi Jinping and Putin are quite openly are challenging the very nature of uh, democracy itself. So you write in your book, between the election of America's first neoliberal president, Ronald Reagan, and 2019, household income going to the top 1% of Americans doubled, while the bottom 90% saw no meaningful increase in income at all. CEO pay went up by almost 1,000%, as the richest 0.1% of Americans saw their wealth rise from 10% of the wealth of all America in 1980 to over 20% by 2020, and more than the combined wealth of the entire bottom half of American families, who today own a mere 1.3% of this nation's wealth. The other thing that happened with Reagan, though, Tom Hartman, was that prior to Reagan, we had a savings-based economy. And then when Reagan came in, wages have been flat ever since then. But what they did to compensate for stagnant wages was introduce credit, where the banks could get uh, money from the Fed for, you know, what, 2% 2% or whatever it is, and charge it back to American customers for 18.5%. And that gave the American public a sense that their standard of living was being maintained, but only through credit. And of course, having a credit-based economy, you in effect become a, a wage slave. You're all indentured to the company store. That's correct. And and this was the result. I mean, you know, um, from from the 1930s until the 1980s, we had an economy that was where the capitalism of America was fairly heavily regulated. You had a top tax rate of 91 percent up until 1967 and 74 percent after that. Um, you had a top corporate tax rate above 50 percent. And what those did is acted as as you know regulators on great wealth and, and economic power. Um, and you had good enforcement of antitrust laws, which allowed uh, local communities to maintain local businesses as opposed to Walmart coming in and wiping everything out. Um, you, it, we had strong enforcement of the right to unionize and, uh, you know, an, another thing that helped build the American middle class. And and we went from in the in, in the census of 1900, the average American family income in today's dollars was $4,500. Poverty was widespread. 90% of America was was in poverty in 1900. The middle class was only about five or 6% of the population. And then of course you had a, a very rich, you know, the top 1%. And 
And from from that until, you know, 1980, by 1980, we had 65% of the American population in what is today called the middle class. You know, in other words, capable with a single wage earner to, to buy a home, buy a car, support a family, take a vacation, save for old age. Um, Reagan came in and instituted neoliberalism in 1981, and it did largely the same thing here that it did in Chile, that it did in Iraq, and that it did in Russia, the three other countries where neoliberalism has been really aggressively tried, and that is it impoverished the middle class. And today, uh, it was officially about five years ago that the middle class dropped below 50%, and now it's around 45% of Americans have that middle class lifestyle. So as the ability of people to live a middle class life deteriorated, they were still already in, you know, they, they, they had a mortgage on their house, they had a loan on their car, um, they had a lifestyle that they were used to. And so, as you correctly point out, Ian, what people started doing was moving away from using wages to pay for that and started using credit to pay for that. And credit got very, very easy as a result of a number of changes, the biggest one being Nixon eliminating the usury laws. It used to be against the law for anybody to charge anybody more than 10 percent interest, period. That was a fixed, you know, we had usury laws in the United States going back to the to the early republic. And, um, you know, when Nixon blew that up, and then when the uh, Supreme Court ruled that uh, that the banking corporations could incorporate themselves in any individual state in the nation that had the lowest level of banking regulation, and that would apply across the entire country, all the credit card companies moved to North Dakota. And that was kind of the beginning of the end for the middle class in terms of becoming, as you call them, wage slaves. So the plutocracy, of course, has gotten more powerful certainly during the Trump era. And, you know, you've got people like Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, again, with the caveat that maybe Mohammed bin Salman and Putin have more money, but still, it's pretty extraordinary. And also, of course, Amazon, Jeff Bezos. So they're getting richer and richer. So the plutocracy is not certainly in retreat. And Biden has made some modest efforts to level the playing field. But it seems to me that the plutocrats have come up with an even cleverer way to get power in this country. They can't sell their ideas legislatively through elections. Uh, they can't win the House and Senate and the White House based upon the greed of the 1% of the 1%. That doesn't fly. But by controlling the Supreme Court, they seem to be getting their way. And the decisions that are coming out of this court lately and are about to come out of this court in this next session, are really, in many ways, about, I guess, the combination of laissez-faire capitalism and religious authoritarianism or moral authoritarianism. Yeah, and, and you know, which has been unabashedly the, the agenda of the right, of the hard right, for decades. And, uh, you know, and, and, and a story that I think the American media has done a terrible job of covering uh, because this really is the I mean, we are we are looking at essentially a Taliban kind of um, worldview, uh, you know, with an American flavor to it coming out of people like, you know, Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, who herself was a handmaid in a religious cult, uh, you know, a very kind of Taliban like uh, Catholic cult. So, yeah, this is a it's a rough time. So. In your book, you end with this paragraph, which I'll read. The neoliberal era is over. 
and the next few elections will determine what type of populism rules America. Will we become, as we emerge from the wreckage of four decades of neoliberalism, an American version of neoliberal Russia or of democratic socialist Denmark? Or will we invent our own new way, hopefully one that can once again lead the world? Only time will tell, but we can all pitch in to bring about a new and better America. Tag, you're it. So on that sort of qualified note of optimism, what are we going to do about November, Tom? Because if Democrats, independents, and disaffected Republicans don't vote en masse, we will have MAGA Republicans running our elections, and you could make the case that the election in November could be the last Democratic election in American history. Yeah, it's it's very true, Ian. Uh, I am optimistic. I think that uh, in particular the Dobbs decision um, was probably the thing that pushed you know most people over the edge, but that Americans broadly are waking up to the fact that this idea that Reagan pitched in 1981 that government can't solve problems, that government is the problem, and therefore we should you know ba- basically destroy, ignore, minimize, minimize, marginalize uh, government. Um, was a horrible mistake. And, 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 and it's time to make government work for the people who, who make up the government. You know, it's we the people. Trying to, time to make government work for we the people again. Um, there is a, a, a huge battle. Uh, there is you know, progressive populism. There's also conservative populism or neoliberal populism or whatever you want to call it, MAGA populism. And, uh, but but I, 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 it sure looks to me uh, like our side is going to do really well. Uh, on the other hand, you know, Nate Silver released his his uh, projections, what, yesterday or the day before, his most recent projections that the Republicans will take the House of Representatives, um, you know, in large part because of gerrymandering in the states. But, you know, it's going to be a tough one. We've got to we've all got to get out there and, and, you know, double check your voter registration and show up. Well, Tom Hartman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Always a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you, Tom. And again, I've been speaking with Tom Hartman, who is the host of the nationally and internationally syndicated talk show, The Tom Hartman Program, carried on Sirius XM and radio stations nationwide and broadcast in video on Free Speech TV. Talkers Magazine named him America's number one most important progressive host and the host of one of the top 10 talk radio shows in the country every year for over a decade. A full-time recipient of the Project Censored Award, Hartman is also a New York Times best-selling author of 32 books translated into multiple languages, including The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, and his latest book is The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the need to pass the PRO Act because even when unions win contracts, corporations using their legions of lawyers drag out the implementation of unionization for years.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Greenhouse, who was a reporter for The New York Times from 1983 to 2014, where he covered labor and the workplace for 19 years. He also served as a business and economics reporter and a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. He's the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And he has an article at The Guardian, Starbucks and Amazon Accused of Dragging Their Feet on Union Contracts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Greenhouse. Good to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us on this Labor Day weekend, Stephen. And what's the latest? Because I understand that Amazon challenged the results of the unionization vote in the New York, what they call a fulfillment center, but the National Labor Relations Board rejected their complaint is that the latest yes that's the latest and and also there's uh, an effort to unionize uh, an amazon warehouse in albany new york but an nlrb judge ruled the other day that amazon's challenge seeking to overturn the union's victory in staten island uh it rejected the challenge and said that the union's historic victory of the 8,300 employee warehouse in staten island uh was was legitimate and and it rejected uh Amazon's challenge. And the workers are saying that Amazon was challenging the union's victory mainly to just try to delay ever sitting down to negotiate a contract. And the article I wrote for The Guardian uh, was really saying that workers at Starbucks, workers at Trader Joe's, workers at Amazon who won these historic union victories worry that these companies will drag their feet forever before ever agreeing to a contract. Sounds like Donald Trump. Well, you know, unfortunately, there's a history among U.S. corporations not just to oppose unionization efforts to try to make sure the union never wins a unionization election, but when the union wins uh, a victory, um, many companies, you know, really drag their feet for years before ever agreeing to a contract. And then there was one study done a few years ago that looked at five years worth of union victories and found that even after two, three years, uh, the union only had a contract 56% of the time, 44% of the time, the union never reached a contract with the companies. And many academics say that companies deliberately, uh, indefinitely delay ever reaching a contract so as to show workers, hey, you thought it'd be great to have a union, you thought a union would bring you better wages and benefits, but tough luck, uh, you're not getting anything from the union except frustration. And also, when a company is able to drag out ever reaching a contract for a year or two or never reaching one, you know, that really discourages the spirits workers. And sometimes the workers naively blame the union rather than the company, and the workers will vote to decertify to get rid of the union. So unfortunately, many U.S. companies see they have definite advantages in dragging out labor negotiations uh, indefinitely. And uh, many uh, labor leaders, many union lawyers, many academics say, you know, there are structural problems with America's labor law that, you know, a company can, you know, companies require to negotiate in good faith once a union wins a union election. But if they don't negotiate in good faith, if they negotiate in bad faith, if they drag out negotiations for a year or two or three or four years, and the NLRB says, you're a bad boy, you're negotiating in bad faith, you're breaking the law, 
the companies can't be fined. There's no penalty. So there's no disincentive to drag out things forever. Companies have every incentive to drag out negotiations for two, three, four years and never reach a contract. So the big question now for workers at Amazon and Starbucks and elsewhere is how are they going to pressure their employers to, to reach a contract? Well, is there any legislation in the works to close this loophole? Because these big corporations have legions of lawyers and it doesn't really cost them anything to drag these things out. Yes, uh, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, uh, the which the House enacted, the PRO Act, which the House voted for last year and which Joe Biden endorsed, um, you know, you know um, some senators are pushing for it in the Senate. Chuck Schumer is pushing for it, but it you know, is not going to be able to surmount a Republican filibuster. There's no way it's going to get the 60 votes to pass. And unfortunately, um, labor, labor leaders say you know, some Democratic senators are all, also have cold feet. But the Protecting the Right to Organize Act would uh, provides that if after six months, nine months, um, the company fails to reach a fir first contract with the union, then there will be arbitrators to um, make recommendations on what the contract should be, because you know, the system is really broken now that, you know, 44 percent of the time when workers vote to unionize, they never get a first contract. And that um, and that it just leads to frustration. I was interviewing, you know, one of the leading academics on this, this uh, Professor John Paul Ferguson, who did the seminal study looking at over 8,000 union victories, and he was the one who found that they got contracts in only 56% of the time. And he said, uh, things have gotten worse. American companies are just so anti-union, and, and he thinks they, they just you know, really don't face any penalty for dragging their feet and, and um, not agreeing to a contract. And he thinks, you know, um, he looked at a Canadian system. Canada has a system where, in many provinces, if company, you know, fails to reach a contract after six months, after nine months, after a union has been voted in, an arbitrator comes in as the PRO Act called for, and the arbitrator uh, says this will be the contract. And that way workers get the fruits of joining a union. This Professor John Paul Ferguson said, you know, what, what people unfortunately don't understand about the American system is that if workers at Amazon, if workers at Starbucks vote, a majority of them vote for a union, that means that they don't get a contract. It means they get a year or two to try to get a contract and try to get union benefits. And it's it's kind of a mess. So is there a personal animus here on the part of Howard Schultz and uh, Jeff Bezos, the heads of Starbucks and Amazon? Do they feel that they've created a company um, and that that's like, the, as you say in your article, it's like their baby and they simply don't believe that the union has anything to violate what they feel that they've achieved. And, of course, we know that these people aren't without an ego, given that uh, Howard Schultz at one point was planning on running for president until I guess he was told that he's not exactly an attractive candidate. So I, I interviewed uh, uh, one of the nation's best-known labor experts, Kate Bronfenbrenner, at... Um, Cornell University. And she said, you know, look at Bezos, look at Howard Schultz. They see their companies as their babies, their precious babies that they created. And they don't think, you know, unions should have anything to do with their companies. And they're very, very unhappy 
that some of their facilities have unionized. And Bronfenbrenner said, you know, there's no way in the world they're ever going to agree to a contract. They're going to do everything they can to prevent it. And uh, in several articles I've written, I, I predicted that, you know, at Starbucks, you know, which has a kind of, you know, progressive, iconoclastic, you know, tattoo wearing, you know, purple haired uh, you know, baristas, um, they might try to organize a boycott and Starbucks, you know, it's in a lot of college, college towns, has a lot of progressive customers. They might agree to a boycott. And I, and I thought that Starbucks might end up facing the largest consumer boycott since the great United Farm Workers uh, great boycott of the 1960s. Amazon, you know, which many, you know, so many, you know, Americans think is indispensable and they can't live without. I think it would be much harder to organize an effective boycott against Amazon. And Bernie Sanders had an idea for a way to pressure Amazon to get it to comply with the law. He noticed he noted that um, Amazon receives over $10 billion a year in federal contracts, cloud computing contracts. And he says, you know, the federal government should stop awarding contracts to Amazon if it's violating the nation's labor laws, if it's, you know, if it's um, intimidating workers against voting the, uh, against voting for a union or if it refuses to bargain in good faith. So I could see different strategies moving forward as ways to pressure Amazon and Starbucks to come to the table and negotiate in good faith and reach a contract that really improves things for workers. And if you've been looking, seeing at what the Starbucks workers have been saying the past few days, they say, Starbucks, um, you know, you know, we want you to be a successful company, but if you keep fighting us, if you keep closing stores, if you keep, you know, including unionized stores, if you keep firing pro-union workers, you know, there's going to be a lot of tension. You know, we're going to be fighting each other constantly. Life's going to be hell for both sides. And that's not going to help Starbucks as a company. And, and they say, you know, Starbucks, recognize us, negotiate with us, reach a contract with us. Let's be nice to each other. Let's be friends. Let's make this a better company with better wages and conditions for the workforce. So the idea that the Starbucks workers could already, they're talking about a, a boycott, no contract, no coffee. Are you, uh, from your research, Stephen Greenhouse, satisfied that the younger generation, since the baristas at Starbucks tend to be younger people, do they understand the value of organized labor? I mean, a recent poll come, uh, says that 71% of the country now supports... Um, I, I just, I wrote a major piece for the Washington Post for Labor Day, where I, you know, the point is, you know, I, I say a top official from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce told me that unions are, are a relics, they're no longer relevant, they're relics of the 1930s, you know, workers don't need them anymore, workers don't need these outside third parties to bargain for them. And I say, but sorry, Chamber of Commerce folks, but American workers, especially younger workers, totally disagree. They think unions are very relevant and definitely not relics. And I note that 220 Starbucks have unionized, um, you know, uh, during, you know, thousands of digital journalists have unionized, uh, thousands of museum workers, tens of thousands of grad student workers, even undergraduate student workers at, at, at at uh, Wesleyan, uh, Grinnell, uh, Kenyon, uh, Dartmouth. At Dartmouth, undergraduate dining hall workers voted 52 to zero to unionize. Dartmouth is a very conservative school. At Grinnell, workers voted 
uh, library workers, dining hall workers, you know, professors, research aides voted 327 to six to unionize. And, and you know, so there's huge support for unions, huge excitement among unions for young people. There's a Gallup poll that came out last Tuesday saying 71% of Americans approve of unions. That's the highest rate uh, since 1965, the highest rate in over 50 years. There's another study um, by Professor Columbia finding that 74%, three and four workers aged 18 to 24 say they'd vote for a union if they could. Four out of five Hispanic workers, Latino workers say they'd vote for a union if they could. Uh, ditto with black workers. Uh, four and five say they'd vote for a union if they could. So there's a lot of excitement you know, about unions. You know, cannabis workers are unionizing. Workers of political campaigns are unionizing. Um, workers at uh, nonprofit organizations like the ACLU and the Audubon Society are unionizing. So this, I submit, is the most exciting, most promising time for unions in many decades. Well, I was about to mention the uh, Gallup poll that just came out. 71% of U.S. residents approve of unions, which what takes us back to the 60s, I think, in terms of yeah. how popular unions are. So it's a definitely a different... As long as the Federal Reserve doesn't screw things up, which they seem to be doing by their way to deal with inflation, <coughs> is to uh, take away this worker-friendly economy. So just in closing, do you think that that's going to happen? Is there a way that we can fight to have this union and worker-friendly economy and so, maintain so I it? Think, I think you, you know workers are feeling very emboldened for numerous reasons. Partly they're just pissed off about how they were treated during the pandemic, you know, not getting enough personal protective equipment, not getting raises when they were, you know, risking their lives working as cashiers or bus drivers or meatpacking workers uh, or, you know, fast food employees. Uh, and there's the great resignation where a lot of workers are quitting and looking for better jobs. If, you know, the Federal Reserve's interest rates increase, really cool down the economy, and increase unemployment, workers might feel more scared, they might feel less emboldened. So that might, uh, in ways, reduce the excitement that push for unions. But I think right now, a lot of young workers, they're just super, super jazzed, enthusiastic about unions, they're ready to stick their necks out. And, and you know, we're seeing more Trader Joe's seeking to unionize, more Apple stores seeking to unionize, um, of course, many more Starbucks seeking to unionize, I think, we'll see more Amazon. So Amazon stores seeking to unionize. So there's a lot going on. And, and, and the question now is whether this, you know, very promising moment for labor really increases, turns into a true movement, or whether it fades because, you know, the Federal Reserve is raising rates. And I submit that the nation's bigger unions aren't doing nearly enough to build this moment to really, you know, help the Amazon workers and the Starbucks workers and the Trader Joe's workers and the Chipotle workers and the Apple workers, uh, you know, to, to unionize far more places. So kind of the jury is out on whether this promising moment really turns into a major movement that reverses the decline of unions over the past few decades. Well, Stephen Greenhouse, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay. Uh, always nice to be here. Well, yeah. thanks again, well. Stephen. And, and again, Labor Day. <laughs> thank you. And again, on this Labor Day weekend, we've been speaking with Stephen Greenhouse, who was a reporter for the New York Times from 1983 to 2014, 
where he covered labour in the workplace for 19 years. He also serves as a business and economics reporter and a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. And he's the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present and Future of American Labour. And he has an article at The Guardian, Starbucks and Amazon Accused of Dragging Their Feet on Union Contracts. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine I'm